What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Essential 11. As always, this is brought to you by Acton Academy. It's brought to you by Acton Academy Placer, by Apogee Strong, and our friends over at discoverpraxis.com. For anybody uh, 16 and older, kind of graduating the high school scene and looking for um, what is next, Discover Praxis is something that I highly, highly, highly recommend uh, to all. Um, This is another Apogee Strong call right here, and you are not going to want to miss this episode. We bring in quite literally some of the best leaders on the planet, and this was no different. Mr. Leif Babin, former U.S. Navy SEAL officer, co-author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Extreme Ownership, with his partner, Jocko Willink. And the book is uh, Extreme Ownership, How U.S. Navy SEALs Lead and Win and Co-Founder of Echelon Front, uh, where he serves as President, Chief Operating Officer, Leadership Instructor, Speaker, Strategic Advisor. Uh, He's a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, uh, 13 years in the SEALs, uh, or 13 years in the Navy, nine with the SEAL teams. Uh, The guy is just an absolute amazing human being, an amazing leader, and he poured into the young guys from Apogee Strong. So welcome, Mr. Leif Babin. How are you, sir? Doing great, Matt. How are you? I'm doing well. Sorry about the time mix up. Everything all all good over there? Uh, that was. Uh, I'll take extreme ownership of that on, on my end. No factor. All good. I'm glad. I'm glad it uh, glad it worked out. I very much appreciate you, sir. First and foremost, appreciate you taking the time to be here. Um, it is definitely a uh, definitely a big deal. Want to make sure you got context on what we're doing, um, and then we just want to chat a little bit about you and then these guys are going to have better questions than than I ever will. Just to give the give the context, I've got a number of schools here that I uh, had the pleasure of opening here in Northern California and um, phenomenal schools K through 12s, kids starting their own businesses and, and going on these heroes journeys and uh, it's been a been a rad ordeal and I went to uh, my friend Tim Kennedy and said, "Hey, let's let's uh, do something for young men as well." Um, so we got him opening a school for us out there in Texas and then uh, he and I put together the Apogee Strong program, which is what we have here. Uh, young men from all over the world joining us and these guys have committed to a year-long program of just being better extreme ownership over their life and uh, we present projects and challenges uh, to them every single month and these guys go attack those they attack workouts uh, and they attack readings every single month and then we get together on on Fridays and get to hear from amazing leaders like yourself so uh, life is good sir and that's that's what we're all about here is, is the mission of pouring into these young guys well, I appreciate that, Matt. It's, it's an honor to be here with you guys. Uh, I, I, I'm no amazing leader. And in fact, if anything, what qualifies me to talk about leadership is, uh, is that I've made every single mistake that you could make. So uh, I recognize that in life, it's, uh, it's be humble or, or get humbled. And uh, I've, been, I've been humbled more than, uh, more than most. So uh, the good news is I've learned a lot of lessons that, and, and I'm excited to share that with uh, all the folks that are here with us today. Yes, sir. I think that, is the, uh, I think that has been the common theme. Um, and whether it's gentlemen like yourself that have come out of service and, and we appreciate that service, or if it's gentlemen that have come out of, you know, professional sports, if they've come out of the entertainment industry, you know, entrepreneurship, whatever that looks like, I think that is the common thread, you know, and that's what I love for these young men is they get to hear that over and over again. And, you know, Tim and myself have all shared our stories of just failure after failure after failure and, and you know, life always presenting an opportunity for us to be humbled uh, if, if we ever uh, get out of line. So I appreciate that very much um, and, and very much excited to just kind of dive into your backgrounds. If, if you don't mind, we, we like to start with kind of an X-Men origin story. Um, these guys all all know who you are. And most of our audience, as we put this out to the Essential 11, um, absolutely knows who you are as well. But we'd love to go back to kind of when you were the age of these young men, you know, kind of 12, 13, 14. And, and how did that trajectory go for you joining the military, going, um, you know, SF, all that kind of stuff? What, what was what was life like as a youngster? That's a great question. I was, uh, I would definitely was a wild man. And, uh, and I, I'm, I'm, uh, I've always been hard headed by nature, uh, which is uh, a great quality that can serve you well. If it's pointed in the right direction, it can also take you in a, a very poor direction as well. But from the youngest time that I can remember wanting to do anything, I wanted to be some kind of a, some kind of a combat leader, uh, some kind of a, a commando, you know, some, some kind of a, uh, a, a soldier, you know, if you will. And, and I, I definitely, uh, you know, from the time I was playing with my GI Joe figures out in my sandbox, I, 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 that's just what I wanted to do. And we'd run around the woods. I grew up in, in uh, rural East Texas. Um, and, uh, it, it just, it's, it was a really small town. We've, it was, it wasn't a great place if you had to drive 60 miles away to the nearest shopping mall, but it was an awesome place if you wanted to, to, uh, grow up in the country. And if you liked playing in the woods and driving ATVs and hunting and fishing and all those things that, uh, that I love to do. So, uh, I started reading about the SEAL teams when I was, 
probably about that age, probably about the age of uh, many listening here, you know, probably, you know, 11, 12, uh, somewhere in there. And I started reading the Rogue Warrior books by, by Dick, uh, Marcinko. Dick Marcinko. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I started getting a hold of, of books about SEALs in Vietnam and, and learning a little more about uh, about the SEAL program. Um, you know, if, if you know anything about the SEAL, SEAL stands for Sea, uh, sea Air Land. It's, a, it's an acronym and it came out of the underwater demolition teams that were the, the, the frogmen of World War II and, and the Korean War, uh, the guys who swam upon uh, uh, enemy held beaches and blew up obstacles. So there was, a, there was an appeal to the Navy for me for that. And so as I went into, you know, that, that kind of junior high school um, era, there was a movie that came out starring Charlie Sheen called Navy, Navy Seals. Seals. That's right. Uh, <laughs> in 1990. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and so that, that was, that kind of solidified that for me. Yeah. And, and uh, later we, we quoted many of those movies, uh, the, some of the most cheese ball lines from that movie. Uh, and other movies like it on uh, on actual combat operations, which was uh, pretty funny. And you can read about that in in uh, Extreme Ownership. But there, there's uh, uh, that's just what I wanted to do. And so I I I knew I wanted to be in the military. I'm I'm a uh, I'm one of five kids in my family. I'm the only one that wanted to be in the military. My my dad served, but it was service to me was just something that's always what I was going to do. And it didn't matter whether I enlisted, whether I was commissioned as an officer. Um, I just knew I wanted to be in the military. Um, and so, uh, you know, I decided to go to the, the college route and I would have gone the ROTC route in college if I couldn't have gotten into uh, one of the uh, the military academies. I was accepted to West Point in January, my senior year, um, before I graduated from high school. And I, I didn't hear back from Navy. Navy was my first choice because I wanted to be in the SEAL teams. But uh, I didn't hear back from Navy until about April. So I'd already accepted my appointment to West Point. Um, and, and I thought I was going to be going that direction. But once I got I heard back from Navy and they accepted me, um, then I, I decided that's what I wanted to do. And I went to the Naval Academy to pursue that dream of becoming a SEAL. Spent four years at the Naval Academy. And at the end of that four years, uh, they took 15. Uh, we had 16 bills at the time. So we had a prior enlisted SEAL in my class. And, uh, you know, out of our screener, we had probably 200 people that went through the, the screening process to, to qualify to go and, and get a chance to go to BUDS, our, our basic SEAL, uh, uh, you know, screening process, uh, the training program. It stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training, BUDS. Uh, and, and that's just our, our basic screening. It lasts about seven months or so. Uh, and I didn't get a chance to go. They only sent 15, uh, 15 uh, you know, midshipmen who were graduating the commission as officers upon graduation and i wasn't one of those 15 so uh it was pretty heartbreaking at the time and all you're gonna have to deal with some failures and, and heartbreak like that but i think that uh you're you're also uh you're also going to learn from that and that was an amazing experience for me i went out and served on two different surface ships uh for three and a half years and as a young you know 22 year old i was immediately thrown into some very uh significant positions of leadership in charge of you know a 28 person division um on on a destroyer with you know millions and millions of dollars worth of equipment that i had to manage and and i had to learn from you know those who were experienced and that was a great experience for me and, and i i finally got selected for the seal program and when i did that it gave me incredible uh it, it gave me just just uh, an incredible appreciation number one for being there uh, for the opportunities that even when other people were feeling sorry for themselves about how difficult this training was, uh, it, I was just so thankful to be there. And that's an attitude that I think served me well throughout my nine years uh, that I spent in the SEAL team. I love that, man. The, um, that, that transition from that, that heartbreak of not getting to go where you thought you wanted to go, but still sticking it out and going a few years later, look, that is still my mission and I'm still going there. Where, where do you think that mindset came from, for you, is that something that was ingrained in family? Is that kind of a DNA thing? And and what does that look like? Because I ask, you know, obviously I get the opportunity to deal with thousands of, of young people and have for, for my career. And I've also had the opportunity to go and speak to so many Fortune 500 companies. And that's how I've actually made money for a long time is working with these companies. And the reason they bring me in is because they're hiring these young people that were the same age you mentioned you were at that point. You know, they're 21, 22, 23. And a lot of what's going on is these young people are, are coming in, they're coming to work, the companies feel like they're not ready. They've got their college degree, but they're going, man, they've got no, you know, real uh, ability yet. And a bigger problem is we're six months in trying to train them what to do. And they're going, hey, where's my raise? Where's my promotion? Where's my, you know, this is not what I thought it would be, right? So you at 22, you're going, okay, well, that didn't work out exactly as I wanted it to, but I'm still going to go forward take responsibility for all this other stuff and come back around to that mission? Where would that mindset come from for you? 
Yeah, I think it's a great question, Matt. Look, the, the thing uh, that I'm probably most thankful for for that experience is that it didn't work out for me. And so I had to deal with that failure. Um, you know, and, and it, it wasn't the first failure. I mean, I've, I've, I've failed tons of times. We always say, you know, failure is, uh, is often the greatest teacher. Um, I, I love playing high school football. High school football where I grew up in Texas is a huge deal. And, and uh, I, I tried to play at the Naval Academy. I was too small and too slow you know, to play at the Division One level. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I ended up playing rugby and boxing and kind of going that direction, which opened my mind to, you know, a lot of other uh, sports and, and things that are out there uh, as well. But so it wasn't the first failure that I dealt with. But it was something that where I had to really reflect on, you know, this idea that, that we now call extreme ownership. I had to really reflect it. It's really easy to say, well, you know, because there were there were people that got picked up that were just simply better athletes than me. You know, there were you know, we it was a highly competitive group. So, you know, I, I never we didn't even have a swim team You know, where I grew up. I mean, you played football. That was that was it. So um, in, in a tiny little town. And yet I'm I'm competing. Uh, for a, for a billet to the SEAL program with uh, the captain of the water polo team, you know, with an all-American all uh, Division One collegiate swimmer. I mean, those I'm never going to compete with them right on that level. Or, uh, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to beat the runtime of the guy who's the the you know uh, uh, the captain of the Navy you know triathlon team. You know, so so there's there, there was it was a highly competitive thing. My grades weren't good. I got in a lot of trouble uh, at the academy. I had a had a conduct record that was pretty significant. So uh, it didn't take a lot to get in trouble uh, for those things. But all those things, you know, affect you in every way. And I think what what really I learned more than anything is it's really easy to cast blame and make excuses and say, well, that other person just happened to get lucky or, hey, they happen to play that sport. So they're in a better position to score more. Hey, you know what? They were an easier major than me because I was an engineer. Well, you know, they were an English major. And so they didn't have to take as many hard classes as I did. Or, hey, that guy actually had a better relationship with, um, you know, one of the guys that picked up had, it was, was very close to the, um, the, the uh, SEAL officer that was at the academy at the time. And you could make all kinds of different excuses all kinds of different excuses. I mean, there were, there were guys who had a lower score than me on the, on the physical fitness test, but they were Navy football players. So they, you know, like, well, well they've got, they've got an advantage because they were Navy football players and that's why I didn't get picked up. And, you know, they got hooked up. It's really easy to make all the excuses in the world and, and point fingers and cast blame. And when you do that, what happens? Like that problem never gets solved. It's a right. problem that's going to continue. Right. You just think, well, the world's against me. And you know, what can I really do about that? And, and what I loved about not getting selected for the SEAL program is that, that was my lifelong dream. And it forced me to take a really hard look in the mirror and say, hey, um, okay, I'm not, I'm not as fast a runner as I need to be. I have to have better PT scores. I have to actually work harder. I need to study harder. I, I need to, uh, there's, there's, I actually have control over the situation and it's going to require discipline to actually train harder, to work harder, to learn more, to, to actually toe the line and not get in trouble for things that, you know, the little stupid things that didn't seem to matter, but yet that impacted my ability to get selected. So, uh, you know, when I went out to the surface fleet, my determination was to be the best surface warfare officer I could possibly be. Uh, and, you know, the whole time, I, you know, that's, that was the opposite attitude of some of the other guys that didn't get picked up, which was like, well, I'm just going to mail it in every day. And, you know, cause I don't care about being here and I really want to be in the SEAL teams. And some of those guys didn't get picked up uh, as a result. Uh, so, that's that that was a great lesson for me is is this this idea that we now call extreme ownership if you're going to cast blame make excuses and point things at other folks uh, or say well it's not really my fault or it just happens to be circumstances or conditions that i can't control there's so much in your life that you can actually control and you know if there's one thing i could teach you you know if i could have learned this lesson at the age of 12 or 13 or 14 uh as you guys are uh this is it would have been absolute gain. I'd be so much further ahead in life uh, than I am now. So, you know, I think it's, it's an amazing thing that, that you're all part of this program and, and learning these kind of lessons because uh, it, it really taught me that. And then I had to, I had to work hard to get a chance. I, I put in a package. I, I, I trained, I went out and met some seals. I, I had some people who wrote me letters of recommendation. I put together the package. I met every requirement that they, um, you know, there was all these different, probably 12 different things that were required to be in that package. So I had this little package that was, you know, 12 pages deep and, uh, and I did not get selected again. 
uh, for the lateral transfer. So two years into my service career. So uh, I, I, I realized like, okay, if this is my dream, this is what I'm going to do, then I'm all in on this thing. What does it actually take? I scheduled a meeting with the, the most senior officer who was on the board at the time. He was, he was a, 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 a Navy captain, which is equivalent of a colonel in the, the Army and Marine Corps Air Force. Um, a very senior officer. You don't see lieutenant junior grades just go in and you don't, you don't just roll into the captain's office and say, no, hey, sir, what's going on? So uh, I did that. I went in and talked to him and said, sir, this is what I want to do. Uh, here's why I want to do it. You know, what, what do I need to do to get selected? And, and, uh, and he was very, he actually told me no one does this. I've never met with anyone that I didn't select before is not come and schedule a meeting. You know, this idea that we call default aggressive, um, which is I'm going to go make some things happen. I'm, if you're just sitting and waiting for things to fall into your lap and things to happen, they're not going to, you're going to have to go make it happen. And, uh, and so, so I was able to do that. And, and instead of turning in those, this 12 page, you know, document of just all the minimums, I turned in about a 40 page document where I just, I went over the top with every single thing uh, that I could do. And, and the very last possible opportunity uh, that I had to get picked up uh, just with my seniority um, you know, three years in as a lieutenant junior grade, I, I was finally selected for, for the SEAL program. That's awesome, man. I love that. I love that concept of, I mean, that concept of personal responsibility is in the accountability there to yourself is exactly what we build these schools upon. It's what this program is built upon. And it's um, so interesting to hear the stories from the young men here from, from, you know, people on our campus when they take responsibility for themselves, especially at this young age, the opportunities that are open to them, um, now and it seems like you know and again i might be doing the old guy thing where i'm like remember back in my day but it seems like we're seeing less and less young people actually do that so when you know young people are are, are taking responsibility they're they're calling people sir ma'am they're going forward and they're and they're actually trying to make happen what they want to happen the response from the adults is just like like they just met Jesus, right? Like it's like they can't believe that you got these young people who are taking on this responsibility. Um, you know, and I love that. We talked to these guys about the compound interest of take advantage of that personal responsibility early. Like you said, if I had done the same thing as a young man, how much further along, you know, would I be without having to learn all those, uh, you know, mistakes, kind of uh, learn all those things the hard way from making all those mistakes. So I love that concept of the personal responsibility. Do you think it's something that we're seeing less and less in society in general. Um, and when I mean, uh, or when I say that, I guess I mean, is it something we're actually as a culture uh, struggling with more than we ever did? Or is it just, do you think we're just being shown less personal responsibility by because social media can blast out all the people that are upset about everything social media can blast out all the you know the victimhood and so we can exacerbate the culture is it a shift that's actually taking place or are we just hearing more about it for this divisive kind of um you know agenda so to speak i think it's both you know i think it's both i think you you know we've i think there's definitely been a, a shift in the culture i mean if we wrote extreme ownership you know 40 years ago uh, I think my grandfather and I, yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Par for the so, course. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's, um, you know, there's, and this is, you know, the reason I say that for all you uh, young folks on here too. I mean, this is um, the reason I'm saying that is because you were talking about folks that grew up in the great depression who had nothing. Yes, I mean, my, who, who, you know, my, uh, in my, my grand, my grandfather's generation where, you know, the, the, his older brother had the only job of the entire extended family, uh, and had to, they had to make ends meet for years, you know, on that one, you know, salary, uh, and, and take care of their entire extended family as a result of that. So, you know, this is, uh, it's, it's hard for Americans, I think today to understand hardship at that level. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I'm so thankful about my military experience is because, you know, it, and I know Tim, Tim talks a lot about this as well, which is it enables you to go see uh, other parts of the world. And I think really appreciate uh, all the opportunities and freedoms that we have here. And so if anything, I think, you know, it's, it's easy to take that for granted when you don't know different, you know, and so it's all a matter of perspective uh, that, that, that you're going through, um, you know, as well. But I, I do think, so I think it's a problem culturally that we've, we've taught, uh, uh, we, we've given people the out of, of uh, to not be accountable to themselves, you know, to not take extreme ownership, but to try to blame other people. Why? Because that feeds the ego. But of course, it never actually solves the problem. And I think the more that people are talking about those kind of things on social media, you know, the, then then the more it kind of exacerbates that that problem, which is already a problem, I think, you know, culturally. So, um, you know, to, to me, um, 
And that perspective is really important because it's really easy to feel sorry for yourself. And I think, you know, I've done, I've, I taught leadership in the SEAL teams for, for two years. I taught every single SEAL officer that graduated from our basic training pipeline. Uh, after Jocko and I came back from Ramadi, he was running training for the entire West Coast SEAL teams and, and putting every SEAL platoon and task unit that was going overseas, you know, through training before they, they deployed to combat. Uh, so we got, it was really an amazing leadership laboratory. Uh, you know, that we, we get to see uh, leaders in, uh, in different, you know, the, the different people in the same challenging situations. And so we really got to see what works and what doesn't work. And really for the last 10 years, we've done this in the business world. Right. I mean, gigantic corporations to mid-sized, you know, mid-level companies to the startups and to uh, 501c3, you know, charity organizations and missionary groups and and, and education uh, groups and yeah. uh, teachers and schools and all kinds of stuff, you know, first responders. Uh, so we, we get to see this over and over again. And the most common excuse that I think any of us give ourselves is that it's harder for me than it is for other people. And, you know, you can, you can take it from just like a, a physical fitness standpoint. You know, you look at somebody who's in good shape and you think, oh, well, it's easy for them. It's easy for them. It's a lot harder for me to eat the right stuff and actually train. It's, you know, it's obviously easy for them and it's not easy for them. They're actually, they're, they're just doing it. They're more disciplined uh, to make it happen. And of course, yeah, look, some people, some people are more prone to gain weight, right? Some people have more muscle mass. Some people are thinner. Like we're all born with, you know, with, with different traits, um, so we're all a little bit different, but it's, it, it requires discipline uh, to do that. And I think when you, you know, one, one of the lessons that I learned, I, uh, after nine years in the SEAL teams, 13 years old in the Navy, I never had any knee problems through, uh, you know, three combat deployments and about, uh, I mean, like not even three months after I was out, uh, I, I tore my ACL in my knee uh, on a, in a, riding horses up in the mountains on an elk hunt with my dad. And it was, it was, I was feeling sorry for myself. All of a sudden I'm laid up on the couch. I can't do anything. I was, I was just uh, pretty miserable. Um, I couldn't physically train like I, I could. I was, I was really down. It's one of the darkest periods that I can remember. Um, and, uh, it was, it, it was, it was really, you know, I was sitting there kind of feeling sorry for myself and thinking, I can't do the things that I used to be able to do. And now I can't go out and train like I used to be able to train and my knees never going to be the same. And I had a good friend uh, who came into town uh, with a group of wounded vets from Walter Reed. And this friend, I was supposed, I couldn't run with him because my knee was, you know, I, I just had surgery on my knee, but he was coming in to run the New York city marathon. And uh, this was a seal friend of mine who lost both legs above the knee in Afghanistan. And so I, I went to meet him down a little a bar in New York City, uh, where I was living at the time. And when I walked into the bar, and it's all these wounded vets from Walter Reed, and uh, I'm in there, I'm on, I'm on crutches, uh, you know, because I just been I I, mean, I was just a couple of weeks out of knee surgery at that point, and they were, uh, you know, these guys are here. Here, there's these these young men and, and women who are standing there with prosthetic legs, and some had prosthetic arms, and you know, they're they're just laughing at me like, hey. What that's, happened to you? That's cute. Yeah. They said, cut that thing off. You know? And they're joking about it. It really just put perspective on me. You know, yeah. I'm feeling sorry for myself, thinking that I've got it bad uh, and, and because I did this to my knee. And my, my knee, my knee I, I, I may not be 100%, but I'll be 95%. You know, if I actually do my rehab uh, and, and hear these, these young folks that are never going to have their legs back. And yet they're out there, they're running. You know, my, my friend, he hand cycled the first uh, half of the marathon and then ran the last half on, on prosthetic legs. That's so awesome. these are incredible people who are not making excuses for themselves and are making things happen. And I think the more that you can, the more that you can look up and out detached from your own, you know, your own, like if you, you can't get so self-focused where you're so just feeling sorry for yourself and thinking it's harder for you than it is for other people. If you actually realize like other people may have it way worse than me and yet they're able to, to figure out a way to solve these problems and get this done. So, you know what, there's a solution for me too. Uh, and if I have the discipline to work hard, I'm going to actually have the freedom to, to succeed in life at whatever I'm trying to do. I love that, man. I love that. It reminds me of uh, my my favorite poem, which actually I first heard, I'm pretty sure I first heard in the movies. I first uh, heard it in G.I. Jane, right? Which is, about, you know, it's the the film about, you know, the female going through through buds, right? And, and uh, you know, the master sergeant says, I never saw a wild thing sorry for itself. A bird would fall frozen dead from a bow without ever having felt sorry for itself. You know, it's this old D.H. Lawrence poem. And, and um, you know, as cheesy as the movie uh, probably is and, and as unrealistic as, as a lot of that probably is, that poem all, always stuck with me. And, and um, you know, I, I 
very much uh, see that. And we try to impart that. I obviously try to impart it on my own kids, and and for you know the young people that we get the the honor of mentoring is is that self sorrow is never going to be serving of of anybody, especially to you. So I. I love that you guys are bringing that to the business world as well. Is that the biggest pushback you guys get? And gentlemen, um, on the call, make sure your mics are off, but also go ahead and get your uh, get your hands up. So I'll start calling on you guys because um, I know you guys have uh, better questions than, than I do. So go ahead and get your hands up. I'm going to call on you here shortly. Um, but is that something you guys are seeing as pushback from the business as well? Are you getting um, leaders that are going, look, our company, it's just harder. Cause I'm, I'm except we're bringing Carlos in uh, for Carlos is uh, speaking to us here in just a couple weeks too, uh, which is, which is super exciting. Um, but do you Carlos guys is fantastic? Yeah. He's got an amazing perspective and, and um, uh, you know, I think from both the officer you know, enlisted side, you know, in, in the SEAL teams and, um, he's an outstanding instructor uh, with us at Echelon Front. I, you guys will get, get a lot out of that. Look, I, I think it's uh, that's a, that's the com- most common excuse that people give themselves. Probably the yeah. biggest question that we get asked, you know, is is um, uh, you know how do I get other people to take ownership? Because they're always looking at someone else. Well, you're not taking ownership, or this you know this other person. And the, and the answer is pretty simple. It's 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 you take ownership. Yep. Because extreme ownership is not about anybody else. It's it's about you. You know, if I'm if I'm worried about what I can't control you. You know, I can't control anybody on this else on this call. But I can control me. And you know, I mean, you can for those. You know, you you guys are you guys are in school. With, let's let's say you don't have a good relationship with a teacher, right? And you don't have a good relationship with one of your teachers. And you can say, well, I just can't get along with that. They just don't like me. You know, they have a bad perception of me. They, you know, their perception of me is incorrect. Well, if if you if you want to just put all the blame on them, then you're in a hopeless situation. You're never going to be able to turn that situation around. But if you realize that your perception, their their perception of you is based on your actions, and you control your actions then you can actually totally change someone's perception of you simply by taking ownership of that. And, right. you know, whether, whether it was a question that you asked and a tone that was unintentional that they perceived as being argumentative or, you know, or undermining in some way. I mean, there's all kinds of those little things that, that really uh, uh, you, you have so much more control over your life and every interaction with other humans than you think is even possible. So true, man. It's so true. And gentlemen, I promise I am going to let you, um, I am going to let you chat. How do you, uh, just one quick question for me, dad to dad, how do, how do you impart that with, uh, with your own children? How does that, how does that message come up with what you guys are doing? I mean, you guys talk openly about it. I'm assuming what you can't, you don't want to beat people down with extreme ownership. So I think what you have to do is, uh, is ask, you you have to ask some earnest questions, you know, and, you know, my, my oldest son is seven, uh, a little bit younger than y'all, but he's, he's, uh, you know, he'll, there's, look, it's in our human nature to want to cast blame, make excuses. And let's say he can't find his shoes. We're trying to get out the door. Can't find his shoes. Um, you know, and, and he'll make every excuse. I don't, what do you, mom and dad, what'd you do with my shoes? You know, I'm like, and, and, and so, you know, my initial reaction is like, is to get mad about that. Like you need to start taking ownership. son. <laughs> the harder I like push back on him and slam him with that, the harder he's going to push back on me. Yeah. He's hard headed just like me. So, so, so what I need to do is actually ask some earnest questions. I'm like, huh? Oh, you can't find your shoes. Interesting. Huh? Well, I, you know, I, who wore your shoes last? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I did. Like, cool. Where, where'd you take them off? Well, I don't know. Like, well, I, did I take your shoes off? Like, no. I, I. So the, you start asking questions to get him to come to the conclusion that's obvious that like, look, son, you took your shoes off. That's where right. did you put them? That's I don't right. know where they are. Go find them. And, you know, and then if anything, what I can do is say, listen, what I've done is failed to teach you that uh, you need to have discipline and where you put your shoes so that you're not looking for them, you know, for, for 10 minutes, every time we're trying to get out the door. Um, so let's make sure what I'm going to do going forward is to make sure that you put them in the right spot where they go right by the door here in this little, you know, shoe, shoe thing that my wife had me put together uh, so that you know where they are and, and how's that going to benefit you? It means that we're not going to waste 10 minutes of our time. We're not going to be late to school. We're not going to, you know, because you know exactly where they are. That's right. So, um, I, I think that's a, you know, it, when you ask questions and when you actually take ownership yourself, other people will take ownership. Roger that. No doubt about it. All right, Kaleo, you are up, sir. Thank you very much, sir, for coming on. Um, so this is my absolute favorite question to ask any of our guest mentors. And it is, what was your most influential mistake in your past? My most influential mistake in my past. That's that's a that's a tough question. I made a lot of mistakes, uh, Kaleo. That's definitely uh, 
you know, I, I think, you know, if you want to talk about, um, you know, the, 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 the worst day of my life is August 2nd, 2006. Well, I lost uh, two, two of my guys uh, in Charlie platoon. And uh, it's the kind of thing as a leader that uh, you always carry with you. It's a burden that never goes away. Um, uh, Mark Lee was, uh, was killed and Ryan Job was seriously wounded. Um, he was blinded as a result of those, uh, of those wounds. And, uh, and then three years later, he passed away, uh, on a complication uh, from a surgery to repair those combat wounds. So that's something as a leader that never goes away. It never goes away. And it's the kind of thing you have to think deeply about, okay, what could I've done differently? Um, you know, what could I've, what, what could I've done to actually bring them back? And you don't have the ability to do that. You don't have the ability to do that. So, you know, what, what I've, what I've come to realize is that, you know, we don't have a crystal ball. Some of that, that Jocko and I had some very uh, heartfelt conversations about in Iraq. We don't have a crystal ball. We don't know when those things are going to happen. If we did, we could not go on that mission. You know, we could actually do some things differently, but instead you got to do the best you can with the information that you have, you know, and I think what I've learned from that is that, uh, um, you know, what I need to do is, is tell their story and talk about their legacy and what those guys did. And that's one of the big things that we do at Echelon Front uh is is remind people of who these guys were and what they gave you know and those were only you know we lost a, another guy in our, our our sister platoon mike monsoor as well so uh those mike and mark were the first seals killed in the iraq war um but but you know even even with uh uh it's horrible and tragedy that was for us there was 98 you know killed in action uh just from the brigade combat team alone 5600 troops that we served with you know army and marines mostly um, but, uh, so it was, it was a, there was a massive sacrifice that was taking place. And I think what we try to do, a uh, lesson that I learned from that is, is that combat is hard and it's humbling. And even when you think you make all the right calls, things can go horribly wrong. Uh, you better be ready for that. And, 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 you know, the other thing is that it doesn't, as a leader, your obligation to your team does not end, you know, just because, you know, I, I got promoted above, you know, above the rank of platoon commander and moved on. I mean, it's something that will be lifelong to the families of the guys I serve with. Um, and, uh, and it's, it, it's a burden that, that, that uh, I gladly uh, carry with me. And I think it's a, it's an honor to take, take care of those families and, and to reach out to them and support them in any way I can, you know, for the rest of my life. Mm. Sir, thank you. Powerful. All right, Aiden Steinbach, you are up, sir. Thank you, Mr. Babin, for coming on. I appreciate it, sir. Uh, my, my question for you here is, if you had to share one, one principle of leadership with someone who knew absolutely nothing about leadership, starting from ground zero, what would the lesson be? Well, I started this off by saying, you know, in life, it's, uh, it's be humble or get humbled. And, and one of the most common questions we get is, what's the most important quality in a leader? And the answer is pretty easy. It's humility. It's humility because if, you know, when you're not humble, uh, when you think you got all the answers to everything or you don't even realize what you don't know, um, then, then you can't listen to anybody else. You can't learn from anybody else. You're not going to be able to educate yourself about better ways of doing things. You're not going to be able to actually look at yourself and analyze, okay, what could I do better? How can I fix this situation? You start getting complacent, um, you know, and even on the battlefield when it's, when lives are at stake, I mean, it's, 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 you know, even if you've, you've got, let's say you're going into a really dangerous area where there's, you know, the, you, and you're going in with a, a team of, you know, 15 or 20 uh, SEALs and some Iraqi soldiers like, like the operation that we did. Um, well, the enemy might be able to muster 100 enemy fighters, you know, and overrun your position and kill everybody. So, uh, and that was, that was something that was not uncommon, uh, certainly in, uh, in, in the Battle of Ramadi during our time there in 2006. So um, it, it was uh this this idea that like if you if you you start to get complacent even like hey we've done a dozen operations in this area and you know that hasn't happened yet so that can complacency can really start to creep in so you got to fight against that and and stay humble and put your ego in check because ego ego is a great driver ego helps you you know you want to make the best grades in the class you want to actually outperform everybody on the you know in, in athletics or you want to you want to actually go and work harder than everybody else at your your job or whatever it is that you do so ego is, is a great driver for our success but ego can also be the most destructive force in any of our lives where and i, and I saw it happen on the battlefield i saw it where uh here's an example where a special operations unit that had showed up to uh ramadi uh you know within the last two weeks you know, they, they're, they're wanting to do an operation and they were told by the National Guard unit. So if you guys know what the National Guard is, right, that's the that's that's reservists. They're part time soldiers. Um, but these National Guard, uh, this National Guard unit had been in, in uh, they've been on the ground for over a year in, in Ramadi at this point. 
And they said, hey, yeah, I wouldn't drive down that road. If you try to drive that road, you're going to get blown up. I don't think you're going to make it to the target. I think you should try to find an alternate route. And this special operations unit was like, you, you guys are National Guard. You don't know what you're talking about. We're, we're special operators. And they, I mean, they just drove down the road and got blown up. I mean, they did exactly what they were told not to do. Everyone knew exactly what was going to happen to them. Um, and it, so, so ego can even, even uh, you, you can even put your entire, your life and the lives of, the, of your team uh, in jeopardy on the battlefield. And that's always uh, the biggest thing that you're up against is your own ego. Um, and so the reason, you know, most importantly, like fundamentally, uh, the reason that if you can't check your ego, if you're not humble, um, the, the worst part of the whole thing is that you can't take a realistic, honest self-assessment. Uh, look in the mirror and say, okay, what could I have done to improve that situation? Okay, my homework wasn't, wasn't, wasn't done. Uh, okay, well, you know, I, I, I got tied up last night, you know, doing something and this thing came up that I didn't prepare for. Okay, well, what could I have done to actually do that homework earlier? Uh, or, hey, we hit some traffic on the way to school. Well, we should have left earlier. What could I have done to actually fix that problem? And so you, you've got to be able to stay humble and actually look yourself in the mirror constantly and be able to conduct this, this, this brutally honest self-assessment uh, so that you can figure out, okay, what could I have done more to improve the situation? Uh, and, and if you can do that, then you're going to run circles around the rest of the world because that I think is the, uh, is the most important quality in a leader. And no matter what level you are, whether you're, whether you're 12, you know, or whether you're, you're a combat leader on the battlefield or whether you're running a company or whether you're an individual contributor as an employee, uh, you know, or a middle school or high school student, like this is, uh, if you can stay humble and when your teacher, you know, is trying to give you some correction or your coach or your, or anyone that you're working with uh, is, is trying to give you some, some guidance and direction, uh, listen, open your ears and listen to them and realize I don't have all the answers. I don't have it figured out. Um, and if you could stay humble, uh, you're going to be in, in a, you're going to, you're going to learn, you're going to grow, you're going to constantly improve uh, all the time in everything that you do. Very well said. Thanks, sir. Very well said. We always say, you know, good good questions are infinitely better than answers, but it's exactly because of that. Good questions show that you still got that humility to to know that I will never have all the answers, and I need to go to other people who are smarter and been there before me to to uh, to help me figure it out in, in any avenue. And that never ends. Never ends. Let me let me give an example of that too, because this is what's you know I, I have a lot of people come up to me and say hey I want to be in the SEAL teams you know and, yeah, but, and they want to tell, you know so we get I get approached by that a lot you know by you know young 15 or 17 year olds or you know 19 year olds or 25 year olds and uh and very rarely do I have people even ask me like hey what's it like what's it like to be in the SEAL teams they assume they know because they watch the TV that's show right. or they watch a right. movie or they read a book you know so um, you know, it's, it's, they don't even understand like, what's it actually like? Not, not what I think it's like, but yeah. what's it actually like? So, um, I think it's just an example of, of when you realize like, okay, there's a lot of stuff that I don't know. Uh, let me open my mind. Let mm -hmm. me listen and learn. Uh, you're going to be in a lot better position, man. Really good point. Yeah. And I, you know, we talk about it from a business perspective or we'll talk about it from a parenting perspective all the time, you know, as I always say, everybody knows exactly how to parent and then you have kids and you realize cool, man. This is, I'm, I'm starting from zero. I know a whole lot of nothing, you know, and, and, and you got to learn through that experience, man. I think that's a, that is definitely a default uh, issue with, uh, for a lot of people in a lot of, a lot of places. Mr. Will Graves, you are up, sir. Thank you for coming on. Uh, what was the worst part of buds for you? And what was your favorite part of buds? Well, first of all, well, I like that get after it shirt that you have on there representing. <laughs> Thank you. That's awesome. Good, good gear from the uh, Jocko store there. Right. Um, you know, we don't talk a lot about buds. Um, and the reason is because, you know, people hear about buds and they watch, you know, they watch the stories about buds and, you know, I, you know, people carrying logs around and boats around and buds is a pretty miserable experience. We have about a 70, 80% attrition rate uh, on average. So it's a highly, you know, screen organization and it's, it's a great screening process, but believe it or not, I was, more tired, more physically exhausted, more sleep deprived uh, on, on, on multiple combat operations than I ever was in BUDS. Um, you know, and that's the reason that BUDS is hard is because combat is a whole lot harder. You know, if, if BUDS is, you know, if you think BUDS is kind of like, is this hard? I mean, co combat is like, I, I couldn't even measure it on the screen, you know? So um, it's just, it's I, some of these operations were going on that are going to be 48 or 72 hours in duration. Like i I've already been up for 24, 36 hours at that point before you even launch on the operation, you know, just planning. So it's the kind of thing that you, you, uh, 
people hear buds and they go, oh, it's crazy. How can anyone make it through that? And it's, look, this is, there's a reason that, that buds is hard. It's because combat is harder. And where buds came from, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, a really cool uh, history of the SEAL teams, uh, a new one that just came out, uh, a book. It's called uh, By Water Beneath the Walls, uh, History of the U.S. Navy SEAL Teams. Uh, it's by a guy named Ben Milligan, who was a, a SEAL, uh, SEAL team mate of mine at SEAL Team 5. Uh, ben served directly with some close friends of mine. Uh, and it's a, it's a very fat, I mean, it's a big, thick, you know, book. He, he took about seven years of research in this. Wow. Uh, ben, Ben was, uh, is, is a, is a fascinating guy, uh, Purdue graduate, you know, very smart guy. And, and yet he had enlisted in the SEAL teams. So here, you know, he's joining the SEAL teams as a young enlisted guy, uh, even though he's, he's more well-educated and, and, and probably a whole lot smarter than, than a lot of the officers that, uh, that he's working for, which is pretty common in the SEAL teams. I mean, we, we have amazing people, uh, just as it is in, in, in the Green Beret program, you know, with, with, with Tim and, and, you know, across our special operations unit, it's, uh, it's, it's, that's, that's pretty common. But, you know, the, the, he talks about where this stuff came from. And it, the reason that, uh, you know, BUDS exist the way it does is because uh, in some of the, the early amphibious invasions that happened uh, in North Africa, uh, they realized, okay, we're putting these guys, you know, the, the, uh, they call them naval combat demolition units. And there was a scout and raider unit. These are all the precursors to what became the underwater demolition teams, which were the Navy frogmen of world war II, And then it became, you know, uh, seals, uh, in 1962. So, um, they, they came out of that program and then all of those programs got combined together in, in 1983, but this came from, uh, uh, it, it came from the fact that it realized that these, these are the first guys on the beach and they're getting, I mean, they're, they're in the worst situation. They're out trying to run around, blow up obstacles so that we can land boats on the beach. And so we got to create some training that's going to put them, it's going to try to mimic the absolute chaos and mayhem that they're going to have to deal with. And, uh, and because they needed so many of them, they, uh, they combined about six weeks of training that had started in, in the Scouts and Raiders program into a single week, which, which became known as Hell Week. And Hell Week is something that has survived, you know, from that time through, through modern era. Uh, and it's the toughest part of BUDS. I mean, it's definitely, you know, that, that uh, five continuous 24-hour nonstop uh, days of physical activity. And uh, you get al almost no sleep during that. And it's, it, it really weeds out the people who, uh, you know, who uh, don't really want to and truly want to be there. And, and it's, it's interesting because it, it, it's, the, you know, that is all it is, is a screening process. It's a screening process because, you know, we've, we've thought deeply about what are the characteristics of someone who is going to uh, uh, succeed in a difficult combat environment. And that's what they do. I mean, they shoot blank fire at you and they've got explosions going off and they're trying to create mayhem and chaos and, and see who can deal with that kind of stuff. Who can deal with the sleep deprivation? Who can deal with being miserable and wet and cold? And there's a lot of people, because we have a, we have a 70, 80% attrition rate, that means there's a lot of people in the surface fleet who uh, are out there who didn't make it through the training program. And, and so I served with some great sailors on, on my Navy ships uh, before I went to Bud's. And when I, when I got picked up, there was a couple of guys on the ship. And when I got picked up, they're like, hey, you know, they, they had gone to Bud's and they hadn't completed the program. Uh, they washed out and they, you know, you have to ring the bell and, and you leave the program, you go out to the service fleet. So, uh, but they, they had told me when I got picked up, they're like, man, yeah, congratulations, sir. That's awesome. You got picked up. I was an officer. And these are uh, enlisted guys. They said, uh, and they, they said, how far do you think you're going to make it through the training? <laughs> And I thought like that's a crazy question. Like what, like all, all the way through the training. Like why, why would you even, you know? But in their mind, it was clear that like this training was impossible. Like no one could make it through this training. Only you'd have to be superhuman to make it through this training. And they knew me. We served together. Obviously, I was a human being. So, you know, how was I even gonna gonna contemplate making it through the training? And you know, I, I think when people wash out of, of, of our training program, they, they generally think, well, if I had just done more pull-ups or if I had to run more, if I had swam more. And, and there is some aspect of that that's true. If you would had more discipline to train and get yourself ready uh, for, uh, you know, the hardships that you were going to have to go through, then, then it, it, it would have been, it, it, maybe you could have prevented an injury. You know, maybe you could have, maybe it would have been a little bit easier for you, but, but it, it doesn't matter. We had, we had a professionally sponsored triathlete in my class. We had collegiate level swimmers. We had, we had professional athletes. Uh, and, and, you know, there's, a, there's, our training is hard for everybody. It doesn't matter uh, who you are. Um, and uh, it, so, so, you know, they're going to be tested. And, 
Uh, and so, and so re- what it really requires rather than, you know, the idea of if I'd done more pull-ups and things would have been easy for me, or if I'd have taken cold showers, I've been ready for the, the, the cold water. What it actually requires is, is taking a really hard look in the mirror at yourself and saying, this is what I want to do. And I'm going to overcome whatever hardship is in front of me to, to get that done. And it's just a matter of will, you know, that's the, that's really the test of wills to look in the mirror and say, um, this is what I want to make happen. And, uh, and so I think for, uh, uh, you know, there's two types of people that don't make it through, you know, hell week. Um, and about 90% of the people that quit, you know, uh, our, our training program, it happens during hell week is usually kind of the, you know, first, second day, uh, maybe second night is kind of the, you know, it's dark, it's cold. Um, you're thinking that, man, I've got three more days of this. So how am I going to do that? Um, and that's what, that's what gets a lot of people, um, you know, out, out of the program, when you, before you start the program, you got two types of people that you can know for certain are not going to make it to this training. And the first type is the, is the, the person that just is totally cocky. That says, it's five days. How hard can it be? This is nothing. You know, I'm going to crush this thing. That person is going to get just annihilated. Uh, because the moment that they come up with just how, how difficult that is, they're at, they, they clearly have not come to terms with the fact that they're going to be tested in a way that they've never been tested before. Um, and so they, they don't, they're not going to make it through training. They're, they're going to quit. The other type of person is the, is the, is the person that is, uh, is, is like has zero confidence, you know, and just says, I, I don't know how anyone can make it to the training. The same kind of people that I was just talking about, yep. like how far are you going to make it to the training? I, I don't know that anybody can make it to this training. It just seems so hard. And, you know, I'm going to do my best, but you know, man, it's just going to, it's going to, I just don't know if I have what it takes. So uh, those people are not going to make it and they're not going to be around. Um, so the kind of people that do make it through training, uh, let me describe what that looks like. It, it's, you know, when you're out there, we call it surf torture. I, I think you can't use surf torture anymore. We now call it surf immersion. Water to therapy. Uh, water to therapy. You know, surf, surf torture is, uh, it, it's, it's definitely torture because you're out there in the, you know, and particularly at nighttime when, you know, it's cold, and there's a cold wind blowing. If you've ever been in, you know, the water in Southern California, right, you have the water. I mean, even in the summertime, the water's like 65 degrees. Um, you know, wintertime, it might be 48 degrees and you're out there with no wetsuit on, just jackhammer and cold and sand in your eyeballs and waves hitting you in the face. Um, and so when you're out there with just arms locked up in the surf zone, you can look at a guy to your left and, and if he looks back at you with that kind of thousand yard stare and you could see, see, like I described with me with a knee injury earlier, when you start to feel sorry for yourself and you're focused on your pain, you know, and oh man, this, you know, this is, I don't know if I can make this. That person is probably going to go ring the bell. They're probably going to quit. They're, there's probably nothing you can do to talk them out of it. They'll eventually go, they'll, they'll sneak off and go, go ring out. And then you look to the guy to the right of you who is, looks back at you with a giant smile on his face and goes, dude, this sucks. And is laughing about how bad it sucks. And, and, and that is the attitude of the person who is like embracing, you know, the, just, just how terrible the situation is uh, and, and laughing about it. And it's exactly what we did in combat. I mean, bullets flying, you know, two inches over people's heads, you know, and shattering concrete all around us. And you're looking at the guy next to you and we're just laughing about, damn, these guys can shoot him. This is crazy. Uh, and this is, that's the kind of attitude that, uh, uh, that's going to serve you well in life when you can embrace uh, difficult things. You look at it as a challenge and you're, you, you know, there's a lot of things in life you can't control. You can always control your attitude. So, you know, having that attitude of, of how you take on those challenges is, uh, is, is probably most important than anything. Um, you know, but it, it's really those two things, right? It's, it's, it's the will uh, to do it um, and, and an honest assessment of how hard this is going to be. Um, and by the way, this is, you know, we talk about it, this ties into humility too, because when you have, uh, we, I go through training. So I'd go out and monitor my guys in, in a training scenario. Um, and we have these, like, we have these really high speed, like laser tag systems. And, uh, and so, uh, they would say I have like mortars going off, you know, and these explosions are happening on this little speaker system that you have attached to the, the sensors on the laser tag system we're using to train. And I get, I get seal leaders like, this is, this is crazy. This is, you know, uh, you know, I don't even know where we're getting mortared from. You know, I don't, I don't even know what's, well, there's explosions going off. I don't know where, you know, we're getting more, it says we're getting mortared. Where are we getting mortared from? You know, this is totally unrealistic. That, that's what I would get. Uh, and, and so what I would say to, to the, that young SEAL leader, I would say, uh, hey, you've never been mortared, have you? Because when you get mortared, 
there's just a giant explosion that goes off. I have no idea where it's coming from. They might've shot that, that thing from seven kilometers away. You know, it's come over the top of buildings. I don't even hear anything coming in. All of a sudden I'm, uh, you know, I, I, there's an explosion going off. Was it an ID? Was it a mortar? I'm not really sure. Um, so you, you have to actually embrace like just how hard the challenges of life are going to be. Um, you know, and there's uh, an, another example of that is we've got, uh, we use these laser tagger systems now with our field training exercise program. And uh, we had a military veteran who was with us and there's a, there's a, when, when, when someone goes down or, you know, you get you shot enough times, like uh, this is where we put leaders to get tested and there's a, it's a man down call. And, there, and it, it's, you know, when, when you get shot, it goes man down, man down. And it's kind of this panicked man down call. And, uh, and so that this was a military vet out there. So yeah, that's a pretty panicked man down call and thinks he's kind of like making fun of this, you know, like it was almost like I, I would never be, you know, panicked mm -hmm. in that situation. Yeah, I, I that. just looked at him and said, uh, you've never heard a real man down call of the radio, have you? Because it's it's the worst thing you could ever hear in your life. You know, you you can just hear the panic in somebody's voice when one of their buddies is seriously wounded or killed, and they know it, and they can't do anything for it. like. And if you're not prepared for that situation, and you haven't thought about how hard that's going to be, um, then you're not gonna you're not gonna you're not gonna do well. You're not you're not gonna do well at all. So, uh, I think I think that that you know the will of just looking in the mirror and being ready for how hard challenges are going to be and accepting those challenges no matter what, you know, and then the attitude of, thank God I have the chance to be here. Uh, and, and, and I'm going to laugh about how terrible the situation is and make the best of it. God, so good, man. That was one of my favorite answers we've ever had to anything is, was there a disproportionate, you know, you talk about the, the triathlete coming through and, and some of the guys captain of the water polo team. And, um, you know, you can always tell by the, by the attitude, it wasn't the the pedigree prior to. Um, I've always been kind of curious though. Was there a disproportionate amount of success for um, guys who have come through and have been combat athletes? Um, and what I mean, so you know, coming out of uh, boxing and jujitsu and wrestling, was there a disproportionate amount, or is that um, you know same? Thing? I mean, the Navy spent millions and millions of dollars of trying to study this because they yeah. wanted more fuels. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and frankly, I don't, I don't think, you know, same, same. They, they focused in on water polo players in the West coast and yeah. wrestlers in the Midwest and, you know, football players yep. in the Southeast or, you know, lacrosse players in the, in the North, Northeast, uh, you know, and those sort of things. But there's, I, I don't think that those numbers were ever even really significant. Interesting. Yeah. At all, um, because the reality is it's not about athleticism. I mean, if you're a good enough athlete, you're going to, you know, you can make it do buzz. Sure. Um, but even if you're a great athlete, you're going to get tested. Oh, yeah. You're definitely going to get tested. Yeah. So, um, you know, that, that's, uh, uh, it's, it, it's, everybody's going to have Achilles heel, you know? And, and so whether you're, you're a great runner, okay, well, you're going to, you, maybe you struggle in the water, you're a great swimmer, maybe you struggle on the runs or, you know, Hey, you're, you're a really good triathlete. Well, guess what? We're carrying a 200 pound log around. So uh, you're going to need some physical strength and power, um, you know, and explosiveness uh, in addition to that. And by, by the way, we're doing down man carries, you know, with somebody who's bigger than you and we got to run to the rocks and back, you know, it's, it's a mile down, mile back, um, you know, so those, those kind of things that uh, there's an Achilles heel for everybody. Sure. You know, the, the thing that I love about buzz is it really told me that you cannot ever judge a book by its cover. Um, and, and you just can't tell people until they're, they're truly tested. I mean, some of the biggest, toughest, loudest talking, uh, guys with the, with the tattoos all over them with the big muscles. And, you know, they, they were gone immediately, you know, like, like with 45 minutes in the hell week, um, after they vowed that they would never quit under any circumstances and, you know, talk really tough. And meanwhile, I remember one of the guys in my class was kind of this short, dumpy looking guy. I mean, you, you know, you, he was one of those guys that never had a six pack in his life. Um, and, uh, you know, had plenty of bubble wrap wrapped around the six pack. You, would, <laughs> you couldn't tell that guy was a seal from, you know, uh, you know, uh, at all. And yet, you know, three week, three days into hell week, he's just real going strong with a smile on his face. Uh, and is just a rock star, you know, and, uh, and it really, really rose to the occasion. So, um, you, you can't tell by looking at people at all. That's cool. Yeah. I was wondering, and that's, you know, more just the mentality versus the physicality of it with the, with the combat athletes and just, it was wondering if there was ever anything that, uh, was a correlation on that, but no, that makes, makes absolute complete sense. I mean, it, we yeah. had great wrestlers in my class yeah. that, uh, that made it through training and did awesome. And we had wrestlers that quit. They you washed know, we out. Had, uh, yep. We had uh, world-class athletes. We had a, we had a, uh, we had a Marine recon battalion, um, a Raider who, who was an awesome, way better athlete than me, uh, you know, had, had, uh, you know, good military experience, uh, who quit, you know, training. So, so you just, you just don't know. Don't know. Thank you. 
Yeah, that's 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 uh that's a, it's impressive stuff. Now I know we only have a couple minutes left, but Naya sent one to the chat. Um, so guys, this is going to be the last one, and and I want to honor Mr. Babinsheim. So Benaya just said, uh, "What was the most difficult aspect when you were working with the Iraqi soldiers, and, and how did you deal with that?" Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Benaya. I think that uh, you know, if, if you, I know you guys are reading extreme ownership. Yes, and um, you know that we talked about that in the believe chapter. It, it was you know we're, we were going into this battlefield in Ramadi at the time, in two thousand six when we deployed. It was really the worst area in Iraq. So you know, a lot of uh, we have about seventy to eighty percent U.S. casualties were coming out of Ambar province at the time, which is the the big western portion of Iraq, and most of those were coming from in and around the, the capital city of Ambar, which was Ramadi. So this city of 400,000 people. So we were in this violent, you know, dangerous combat uh, combat zone uh, where U.S. troops were getting killed almost every day. And we knew that we had each other's backs. Uh, we knew we had a highly trained group and, 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 and with our, our SEAL platoon, our SEAL task unit, task unit bruiser. And yet all of a sudden we're getting told we got to work with Iraqi soldiers. And, you know, Iraqi soldiers were, many of them were just there for a paycheck. Um, you know, we, they can't speak the same language we do. They're, many of them have almost no training. Their gear's terrible. I mean, some of these guys were patrolling in flip-flops because they didn't have boots. Some of them were training with broomsticks because we didn't have rifles, uh, you know, for them to train with. And worst of all, some of these guys weren't on our team and they would shoot you in the back if they got a chance to. So it was very hard to accept that, okay, we need to go out and work with Iraqi soldiers. Um, and you know, when you get told to do something that you disagree with, what you need to do, number one is, is not react emotionally to things. You actually have to put your emotions in check, detach from that situation and think, okay, why are they asking me to do this? Why is this important? And that became pretty clear, you know, as Jocko wrote about in, in that chapter of, okay, they're asking us to do this because, uh, if, if we have to be the the security forces in Iraq forever. We're going to be here forever. You know, we're going to be here forever if they can't actually do this for themselves. So we need to, we need to actually figure out a way to do it. And, and we did that. We, we built great relationships with the Iraqi troops. Uh, we had some great Iraqi soldiers we worked with. We, we always had somebody who was detached and, and uh, always somebody who was armed and never gave them, you know, an opportunity to even think twice about that stuff. We were careful about what intelligence we shared with them. We were careful about what we, you know, how we trained uh, what we trained them on but frankly we had some awesome iraqi soldiers and you know they lost one of their guys um toward the end of our deployment who was killed in a, in a vehicle accident and uh, we took up a collection from the team and you know in, in the uh, arabic culture it's it's common to um host a feast uh to family and friends you know uh at, at the passing of of a loved one and uh and so these guys didn't make a, you know have a lot of money and so we we took up a collection and they they bought we we purchased a sheep and they slaughtered the the sheep and and had a bit basically had like a barbecue and celebration of of uh, this soldier's life that we worked with and we were proud and honored to donate that uh you know to 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 honor this iraqi soldier that we had a great relationship with and you know when we lost mark lee they were crushed they were crushed. Mark had a very close relationship with these Iraqi soldiers that we built along with, with them. Um, so, you know, we, we, we made the, the, the most of that situation. What's interesting is, you know, I was complaining about having to work with these Iraqis all the time. And as we wrote about in that chapter, uh, you know, we, we were saying, well, these guys aren't as good as, as us. And, you know, they're, 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 they're dragging down our team and preventing our, you know, and, and minimizing our capability. And yet we'd move up to like a gate uh, to try to go in the gate uh and uh you know i remember one time we we're trying to slap explosive charges on this gate to like blast this gate open it's kind of fun to blast gates open i'm not gonna lie to you but uh but when you when you do that you let everybody in the neighborhood know where you are which now you've just given away the element of surprise and I, the iraqi soldier would come up and just stop us and they just reach under because they knew how the latches worked on the gates which would kind of <laughs> and just pop a gate open they just pop a gate open and go right inside the other thing they could do is they could tell who who are bad guys. You know, we we'd enter a building and you know if there's four or five military age males there and you know some some family members, I can't tell who's got a Syrian accent or who's from Saudi Arabia or who's maybe a foreign fighter who was trained in Afghanistan or you know from Yemen. I have absolutely no idea. And yet, Iraqi soldier can tell that right off the bat um, just by the you know how their mannerisms and their accent and 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 uh, so. Uh, so, so it was actually a great working relationship that we formed with them. Um, and so, you know, anytime you're getting told to do something and you, you, you're taking issue with it, first thing you gotta do is put your emotions in check, think about why you're being told to do that. And, and then realize like, oh, there's probably some benefit that's coming out of that. Uh, and I think if you do that, uh, it's going to serve you well. Amazing. 
Sir, so grateful for you. Grateful for your time. Grateful for you pouring into these young guys and, and uh, for, for coming on here and for what you guys continue to do uh, and just spreading that message, man. I'm going to reach out to uh, I'll reach out to Jack and the team later. I have some things I want to send over to you guys just as a small thank you for, for what you're doing, man. But I appreciate you so much. Well, thanks everybody for your time. And look, I, I think for, for all, all of you young men listening to this thing, I, I'm, uh, I'm proud of you uh, for being a part of a program like this. Uh, for learning these lessons uh, and and be willing to spend this kind of time to actually, uh, you know, take on some, some mentorship and guidance uh, from, so that you don't have to learn these lessons the hard way like I did. Um, and it gives me, uh, no, no matter our, our challenges in America, we live in the best country in the world. And the thing that's going to continue that is when folks like you uh, are taking these lessons, implementing them in your world, whatever you decide to do with your life, you know, to take them out to teach your kids and those around you and lead your communities and uh, in, in, in the principles that we're talking about here. So uh, it, it, uh, it does me good to see that uh, that we've got some uh, some good young men like you that are actually taking these principles and putting them to use. So Could not agree uh, thanks more, for the sir. time, Matt. Thanks for the opportunity to be here and, and, and to share and uh, look forward to, to, to reconnecting with you all down the road. Looking forward to it as well. You guys give a big thanks. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate you. There's Leif, man. Go out and get the book. Go, uh, go check out Extreme Ownership. Go check out everything Leif has going on. Go check out everything the team at Echelon Front has going on. Uh, and thank you for continuing to check out everything that we have going on here on the Essential 11, as well as uh, with Apogee Strong and, of course, Acton Academy. We will see you all next time.